As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. Welcome to Android's Dungeon on CFRU 93.3 FM or online at CFRU.ca or through one of the many podcasting websites. Uh, although I think we're hopelessly behind on a couple of episodes, but we can rectify that. That's an easy one. But you can listen to the, the old episodes that age like wine. Uh, I am Jack and, and I'm Joel. Joel's here. How are you doing, Joel? Oh, so good. Yeah, you should just be listening to us in syndication forever. And like, also, you know, we demand those royalties. That's right. We get fat stacks every time somebody plays us. Because, you know, it's like when they spin albums on a radio station and guys like get five cents or something, uh, we get $100 every time somebody listens. So 100 bucks a play. 100 bucks a play. We're the, we're the most well-paid syndicated radio station. You know, if we did get paid like that, we would not be missing episodes <laughs> yeah, i think the production values might climb a little bit yeah just a little you don't want to say too much because that'd be kind of promising the, the moon uh but android's dungeon is a show about books movies games music whatever happened to us before we walked into the studio and as usual I'd like to start each episode off by asking uh joel what have you been playing recently well i know you were busy this weekend but me and the boys out in East York, they're uh, they're good crew. I've gotten really used to playing with them and always really good at teaching games. We got in uh, two new games, uh, PAX Renaissance and Robo Rally. All right, so let's start with uh, PAX Renaissance because that's the game I'm the most interested in. And Joel, you had a really good write-up afterward, which was uh, nice to mm-hmm. see. Uh, but can you describe the game? Yeah, one of my favorite things about this group is uh, every time we finish a game, we go away and, you know, spend the night um, <laughs> contemplating all of our failures. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come back the next morning and often we'll, uh, we'll all write our thoughts on the game. And we, we play a lot of games. We play some very complicated games. Pax Renaissance is no exception. Uh, it's an Eklund game from 2016. Even though it feels re- much, much older, um, it it actually, like at first, I thought it was like one of his first games, and I think I said something like that in the in the write up. Uh, but no, it's new. <laughs> I don't know where they got the artist. Well, <laughs> like, we need you to draw something that looks like it was made in '94. I think it's definitely one of those games that, because um, I was telling, Joel and I were talking about this for a bit, but uh, a lot of these older Eklund games, I think uh, graphic design was on the lower priority of the, uh, <laughs> when production was considered. And you look at stuff like um, like Pax Porphyriana, I, and I'm never sure if I'm saying that properly, but uh, the, the artwork on the, the game, like one of the, the, the deluxe edition, the game board, looks like somebody took this really low-res JPEG and just stretched it to fit yeah, the, exactly. It, it's, it's like painful. It, it hurts my eyes. Like yeah, just they actually black do look stretched. Yeah, I even thought about that. But yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like this classic art style where uh, all the colors are kind of uh, muted. There's mm-hmm. nothing. There's nothing sharp. There's no edges to anything. Um, and it's kind of going for that kind of like Renaissance painting. Um, 
I don't know who's who's the artist that comes. Who, who can I'm who embarrass cares? myself? <laughs> Trying to think of who it would be like Rembrandt or something. I don't yeah. even know if Rembrandt's considered about it. Michelangelo. Just a very rich European artwork that's yeah. uh, very sumptuous. <laughs> sumptuous, yeah. And then it's got this overarching chess theme. So every single one of the cards in the game is a, is a different chess piece. You've got pawns. You've got queens, kings, bishops. Uh, rooks, knights, and rooks and knights are also the military tokens that go onto the map. And the map is also cards. Believe it or not, have you have you seen the map? Yeah, it's because it's the same way that uh, PAX Premier First Edition was. It was just cards. You just laid them out like uh, mm. I think it was like um, I, I don't know if, uh, three by two or something along the lines of like that. So okay, so we got some points of reference here. So. Uh, let me begin to describe the functionality of the game, then. How about that? Perfect. Uh, so the game looks bad. Let's leave throw it that out there and leave it there. It's an ugly game. I wouldn't give it any points when it comes to that. But I don't think that's Eklund's focus. And, I, and it's not typically not his player's focus, either. You're not playing an Eklund game because it looks good, mm-hmm. generally. Or you wouldn't play the games. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but this game is is super ambitious as far as all of the things that he tried to include and what you can do. Uh, So like I said, there's cards, and those cards have little gaps in between them. And the gaps in between them are considered uh, you're you're kind of like on the border between the territories. Mm -hmm. So you can take one of your cubes and you can go in between any set of cards. You can go north-south, east-west, doesn't matter. Uh, and if you're there and the trade route is run that passes between those two cards, uh, you get a dollar. So say in a crazy example where you manage to put down like five cubes on a really long trade route going west uh, from, let's say, uh, sort of England to um, Hungary or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you manage to put down five cubes, you get $5 every time that trade route is run. Those trade routes can be run by anybody at any point in the game, and everybody along the path gets money. Whoever triggers it gets an extra buck. So there's how, income. So Sorry. how do you trigger these things? Is it like a in? So unfortunately, my my point of reference is all packs premier in the sense of like, are you just activating cards in a tableau? And so if you activate the right one, then it does the trade route action. There's, like it's just packs. always there. It's oh, the, the far left card. Basically, the backs of all the cards are either west. Uh, trade route or east trade route. Okay. And there's two routes along uh, in the map, and so if you trigger the leftmost card in the top in the lineup, uh, you trigger a trade route, and you add two bucks to the trade route, and then any money that's been put there by purchasing cards in the tableau mm-hmm. is also available for people to pick up. And then when it's gone, it's gone. Okay. So if you're at the end of a trade route, and you know it's been active, you you might not actually see any money. Mm. then uh, there's a lineup of cards and the cards will either be uh, in a certain territory you can do X action or it'll be either east which is the right four cards or west be the left six cards Hmm. you can do it anywhere in that region kind of thing so obviously the specific territory ones are typically stronger uh, but there's things like getting rid of other people's cubes, getting rid of military units that are sitting on the on the map, 
um, it's kind of weird. Every time the trade route is run, military units are added to every place that it passes. But there's like a maximum based off of these little symbols on each card. And are the the military units are they? Is it like Pax Premier in the sense that they're added? Uh, like you're not you don't own them, but you're just giving you're just adding them based on a faction. So it'd be like papal units or like uh, exactly. Italian. Well, they're they're just knights and rooks. Okay. And the knights and rooks also, because um, like I said, this is a very ambitious game. Um, follow a certain religion. They're either Islamic, they're Catholic, or the Protestant. So they're red, white, or black. Okay. And that is really important because you can trigger jihads and religious wars where a certain faction or certain uh, religious group will, everything from the neighboring territory that is of that religious group will come in and converge on this spot and kill, it, <laughs> kill anything in the area. Oh my God. And that's a good way to flip, a, flip an area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Papal States is sort of like the, um, the, the super unstable... Anybody can get it thing because it can only hold one military unit. So everything around it, um, especially the Ottoman Emperor, which empire, which is like massive, it's got like five or six military units on it, can just swoop in at any point and just snag it, which kind of gets you to the victory point, or sorry, the victory conditions. Uh, Eklund is not a. <laughs> He doesn't hold back, so he's got four different victory conditions. <laughs> uh, the simplest one and the one that uh, ended up winning in our game was Imperial. Control three, control two more territories than anybody else. Pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Then there's a Commerce one where you have more of those trade cubes and also more little ship symbols. There's a, there's a religious one where you can control all of uh, certain religious military units. Uh, and there's one where you can actually develop some reform and get some laws out, which was what Y was going for. And it was actually pretty close to it. So basically what happens is you you buy cards, you play cards, you get two actions per turn, and eventually people will get into a situation where they think they can win. and Unlike uh, dominance checks in Pax Premier, comets come up. And if <laughs> you like purchase game. a comet or discard a comet, uh, yeah, exactly, like his other Eklund games, uh, then you can flip and activate one of those victory conditions. Uh, that just means that on your turn, if you get to your turn and you still hold a victory condition, you can use one of your actions to trigger the win. Mm. And that's it. That's Pax Renaissance. Simple, yeah, right? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> what, do you, uh, what do you think? Well, because I think uh, now that the Pax Premier reprint is kind of hitting and it's more available than uh, it was before, I think maybe more people might have a frame of reference for uh, Pax Renaissance. And also, the, the reprint of Renaissance is going to be coming out next year sometime, uh, God willing. And I, who knows if they'll maybe try to streamline some things, or maybe it's just a pure artwork thing. Who knows what will happen? But uh, based on your description, I think I get, I, I feel like I understand most of it. But at the same time, it sounds way more complicated because of um, maybe the, the differing win conditions. It would be like if Paxmir lets you win for having the most tribes out on the board. And, yeah. Or the, 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 mo- and like the religious affiliations of the tribes, and who knows what's that sort of stuff. But I guess the big question is, did you have fun? Uh, I guess three. Did you have fun? Would you play it again? 
And uh, what would you do differently in the, if you did play it again? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the PAX Premier is just points because that was one of Mark's comments. We have a friend, Mark, who's, who kind of piped up. He wasn't actually in the game, but he said he really liked how PAX Premier is really straightforward with like you score victory points, right? Mm. You score them on dominance checks. Because like you said, you can't really tell who's ahead, who's not ahead when it comes to Pax Renaissance. So I did enjoy the game. I will play again because I really I feel like I know 30% of the game at this point. Right? <laughs> A lot of the rules are in the cards, right? Yeah. You know, like, okay, well, this particular card you gotta look out for because of X. And I, I think that's the same in all of these card-driven games. Yeah. Like uh, Twilight Struggle is a most obvious example of something. Yeah. You don't know the cards, you don't have a chance. Yeah, yeah. And I think Pax Renaissance is the same. Well, sorry, just to, before you go any further, did you find, so you bring up Twilight Struggle, but Twilight Struggle is, I think, interesting because a lot of these cards, like there's some basic ones in there, but there's some crazy game-changing cards that if you know the game, you keep an eye out for, or you, if you're on the opposing side or your own side, you're always looking out for them because they're significant mm -hmm. either way. Did you feel like in Pax Ren there was when you're playing it with people who've played it a couple times that you would like a card would float up and then all of a sudden they go, Ooh, that one's important, or that's a really important card, or was it all context sensitive? Kind of like yeah, how especially like why would always be like, Oh my gosh, that's come up already. Yeah, okay. <laughs> These certain <laughs> ones like there's certain ones that can actually change where the trade routes begin and end. And those can really shape uh, you know, where people want to put their cubes and everything like that. And then there's certain uh, rulers and uprisings and stuff that yeah uh they they seem to know every card mm -hmm. i'll say that and then like, when a card flipped because you know like when you do the cleanup phase on someone's turn uh you you refresh the lineup when a card flipped they would always talk about it mm. oh it's this card so obviously i felt a little left out being like uh, okay what does that mean i don't care sure. Sure. but uh, yeah i mean it's just a game you got to play a lot i think in order to to like it, but I think they all kind of agreed that they liked Pax Premier better. And is that like? And I'm surprised John said that because for the longest time, it, his was he was the <laughs> one who was like always like, oh, I didn't like Pax Premier. I didn't like Pax Premier. Now maybe it's the first edition that he didn't like, but yeah, uh, I think so. Um, I guess now because we're now we're really into it, like comparing the two of them. But beyond the streamlined points, do you think there was also the element of just like the, the production value being making absolutely, it easier? yeah. Like Pac Mirror just looks better generally. You can kind of see like there's a map, right? You can see okay, I've got units on the map. I've got spies on people's cards. Whereas this one, like you, I mean, maybe it was because it was on. Vassal? Uh, vassal, but you couldn't see other people's tableaus very easily. Like, that makes it tricky. Tableaus weren't uh, on the board. They were in each other's individual windows. Mm -hmm. And even when you did look at other people's tableaus, you're like, well, there's a bunch of cards that go east or a bunch of cards that go west. Oh, that's another thing. You know how like in Pax Premier, you can like play a card or play an action on a card? Mm -hmm. In Pax Renaissance, each card is either an eastern card or a western card, which means it goes to the left or to the right of your leader. Mm -hmm. And when you trigger eastern uh, ops, hmm. you play every single action, <laughs> or you play every single card going east. So, this, so that's what that you're saying in your email then, or that that was getting in that chain was that 
this kind of like in let's say um origins or uh, some of these other games with these tableaus and get out of hand where somebody's taking like 30 actions on a turn and you do one and you're yeah. kind of go, well that was fun and then yeah and then on. like three other people go and like two of them take two of them like take away your cards because like <laughs> there's also this thing where you can get queens and then you can marry the queens off and then you oh. rule an empire yeah and if you rule an empire that's great except for like any single one of these military actions could just you know flip Top that up. empire to somebody else okay well then how much of this do you think is like just based on you like being a total newbie and with oh absolutely yeah i don't i didn't understand what i was doing and probably snatching up empires way before i could control them yeah well i guess at the end of the day like what sort of recommendation would you give for pax renaissance because definitely based on your description because uh, I would recommend Pax Premier to a lot of people, not the average person like walking off the street, kind of like going to the J and J's, for example, going, you know what? I also go give Pax Premier a shot. Like it takes a, a certain type of gamer to want to, or like not to want to play it, but to be able to appreciate the game because it, it's probably going to be way different than anything anyone's ever played. But would you? What sort of person would like play Pax Renaissance? Do you think aside from somebody who already owned a copy, or yeah, uh, I mean. It's going to be an enthusiast for sure. Yeah. You're not going to walk into Games on Tap or yeah. uh, the boardroom and or yeah, <laughs> the round table and um, and pick it up on a first date and be like, "Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're going to already know uh, some heavy games. Hopefully, you've even played an Eklund game before. I would say it should not be your first Eklund game. Yeah. Well, if you, let's another one last question. If if you think you were learning it for the first time, how difficult would it be without someone who knows what they're doing? Like, just I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I mean, maybe if you were like really, you know, you're going to cons and you're a pretty hardcore gamer, you could probably read through the book and and figure it out. And some yeah. people, you know, they got that situation. But if you can find somebody that knows the game. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. All right, cool. So, Pax Renaissance, final verdict. What would you say, Joel? Uh, I will give it uh, three 13-year-old married-off queens out of five. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay, cool. All right, so talk about Robo Rally because this is a game that I've heard so much about. And to Have be honest, I, no. And I'll, I'll oh just I'm gonna pref I'm gonna preface this with saying. I know, I think uh, Kayla knows somebody who said it was her favorite game of all time. And I know a lot of people who say they it's their worst game of all time. Uh, so tell me about Robo Rally. What are your thoughts? Well, honestly, like, it's been the same for me for ages. Like, uh, Dave's Pop Culture back in BC, they, you know, played Robo Rally on occasion, but never when I was around. And, like, mm -hmm. I knew that, like, I knew of this game for at least 10 years. Mm-hmm and really like sort of indifferent to it like whatever you know i heard that there was like some programming involved and i was like oh that sounds nerdy <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to do that yeah. but uh yeah no it's it's brilliant i it totally lives up to all of the the hype and <laughs> all those haters out there that don't like rover rally you're dumb <laughs> <laughs> Right, so, feel bad. <laughs> tell tell all the uh, the people who are uh, idiots uh, you know, know nothing about it. What it, what is Robo Rally? Uh, Robo Rally, you uh, pick a map, 
any map. It's going to be some kind of tech, techno uh, situation. Uh, you're going to have some pits. You're going to have some walls. Maybe some have some like fire fire hazards or whatever. It's it's whatever you want. It's totally customizable. And then you're going to drop down into it with you know two two to six robots. And then you draw a card of nine, uh, hand of nine cards. And you tell your robot what to do, but you have to tell your robot everything that it's going to do for the whole round, which is five moves. Okay, so there's flags around the board, and the object of the game is to get to flag one, and then to flag two, and then to flag three. Whoever gets to flag three first wins. Uh, You don't have to end your turn there or anything like that. You just have to end one move there in order to collect the flag. There'll be things around the map where you can pick up upgrades and heal. Uh, and like I said, there'll be things to damage you. Uh, so you're going to get your hand of nine cards, and some of them are going to tell you to turn around, like U-turn, right turn, left turn. Some of them are going to tell you to move either one, two, or three. And some of them are going to tell you to back up. That's it. That's all the cards. Just direction and movement of certain distances. You're going to play all those five cards face down in a, se- in a sequence. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to say, okay, let's go. And hopefully, <laughs> in a perfect world, your robot is going to follow your orders and move around the map and change direction, and it's going to get to a flag, or it's going to get to wherever you want to go. But what actually happens is that there's a bunch of other robots on the map. And if you go, you're both going to crash into each other or push each other out of the way, um whoever goes first uh sort of each each card has a number and the higher number goes first will kind of push you off of your program path and then you're going to keep following <laughs> your path for the rest of the game but yeah. none of it's going to make sense yeah. and you're going to end up doing something crazy and that's where the fun begins uh furthermore wherever uh at each order not between each round but between each order uh, if a robot is pointing at another robot, it shoots it with a laser. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, you draw less cards. You basically have you have nine health. You draw less cards for each damage you have, and then once you get down to six health, um, it gets really um, complicated because whatever your fifth order was that round, that's now your order forever until you heal up. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if it's a right turn, every one of your fifth orders is going to be right turn. If it's going to be a backup, you're going to have to do that backup every time for your fifth order. Uh, so things can get uh, crazy pretty fast. But fortunately, you can power off your robot, hope you survive the whole round, and sit there, do nothing, and then you, you heal up to seven health. Not full health, but up to seven. So it's a race. It's just a racing game. Play some cards. Find out what happens. So everything you described to me, like before I say what I'm going to say, how long is this game? Uh, yeah. So there obviously there's player elimination, but you have three health. Uh, but each of our games went maybe 25 minutes, half an hour. Okay, that's not bad. So it sounds like it's one of these like controlled chaos. Uh, I'm going to try not to take this too seriously and just like goof off type experience where you, you kind of set these plans and hope for the best. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's like Cosmic Encounter, but it's a race. 
is this game even in print? It's got to be in print still. It's an old Avalon Hill game, though, isn't it? I don't know if it's in print. Um, I know that it's worth a lot. Oh, interesting. Maybe it's out of print then. Robo Rally. So the whole ninety-four. Okay. Was re-released in July two thousand five and two thousand sixteen by Wizards of the Coast. Okay. Wizards of the Coast. Oh, because I guess I bought a bunch of their properties. Um. So the the I think the interesting part about Robo Rally that's one of its lingering and I could be I'm probably talking about my ass here and somebody somewhere would go actually, but the the action programming mechanic is one of those things that is showing up more and more i feel like these days because there's this neat element of planning for things and it's a i think outside of maybe like the race structure of um uh of robo rally it uh in a more euroy setting kind of like um rurik this game that um, i've heard great things about dawn of kiev there's you're you're programming what you're going to do every turn and you're kind of looking at your opponents and seeing what are they going to program do i try to like get away from trying to fight them on certain things it's it's like a almost like a, a blind auction of sorts uh so i think auction and programming is are kind of similar but the uh, space alert is one of the most famous games out there that encourages that's it's all action programming but it's this this co-op experience where you're trying to fix the space station and you're sending your robots to do different tasks hopefully you don't bump into mm-hmm. each other or uh screw up or you know <laughs> it kind of like galaxy trucker-esque uh, disasters occur that sounds cute. I wonder if you're allowed to talk about it, or if you're I, just like. Just no, I, I think you're not allowed to. Like, you can't say I'm playing this because otherwise everyone just like play around each other, and then it would defeat the purpose. I think it's all supposed to be blind and trying to figure it out. But, uh, um, both Robo Rally. Do you think this is a game that um, would you could just slap on a table with your family and it, you could go? Absolutely, you can sque- Like, it should be a warm up game. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a game you can squeeze between any other game. Um, you know, setup time is ten minutes. It's totally customizable, so you can do like a very easy map for kids, mm-hmm. or you can just go nuts and get you know like fire hazards everywhere and everything. Mm-hmm. It's uh yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just looking a little bit more on the history. It looks like it was actually invented by Richard Garfield. Oh, in eighty five. A year before I was born, so the game is older than me, and you can you can get a modern copy for about fifty bucks on Amazon.com. That's U.S. dollars, but still. Yeah. yeah. In Canada, they want a clean one hundred ninety nine. Is that on Amazon though? Yeah. Yeah. Well, big question is then: Would you recommend Robo Rally then? Absolutely. I mean, I can't believe it's taken me this long to learn it. It's oh, the by the way. You- Sorry to interrupt. It's, it looks like uh, it's sold out, but it's forty-four bucks on Board Game Geek. So nice. And Hasbro, which is I guess Wizards of the Coast's uh, parent company, sells it. So hey, well, I'll definitely trying to pick it up soon. Uh, it's it's kind of the cutest. Like every robot's got a description about how it's kind of like just happily working its way through and doesn't really understand what kind of, what it's, the greater situation it's in. Some of them are really silly and just spin around, and uh, it's it's kind of a take that, but not really because ideally you're just kind of running around the map. But there are some people like uh, maybe you saw in the email that will just try to shoot each other. Yeah, <laughs> just and it kind of gets into that. that. You can play battle royale or whatever with it. 
there are certain cards. There's like this is a super laser, so instead of just shooting the first guy, uh, you can shoot through everybody hmm. in a beam, or you can, uh, you know, instead of shooting a guy and um, and you, and he takes damage, you can shoot him. You can make him move forward one, right? Hmm. So there, there's a lot of like silliness incorporated. It is a silly game. You're not going to take it too seriously. Uh, but it is, you know, still a challenge. Sometimes you just get turn cards and you just spin around in a circle for <laughs> for the whole round, right? Because you got to do yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess as long, it strikes me as one of those things that as long as you're not taking too seriously, you're not in there to, like, in it to win it hardcore, you're p- pouting about how disastrous it went and the game's over within a, a quick amount of time, then, like, how can you be too upset about something as silly yeah. as Robo Rally? I have a 65% win ratio on Robo Rally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that that's it <laughs> so how about you jack uh what, what have you been playing lately it's uh it's been sad as far as uh board games go i haven't really been able to uh play anything and i think uh the the last board game i don't want to bore it too much but i I'll, I'll bring you into it because i talked about it last time is um i guess it was 1860 was the last game i got to play and um We've been we've talked a little bit about it um, on our own, yeah. but tell me your thoughts about 1860 and in general, just kind of like because I feel like we've played more of these games than we've ever played in the past, which is great to see. Uh, but yeah. um, why why don't you tell me your thoughts about 1860 and then just uh, about the genre in general and what what you think about it? Well, it was interesting. You played two games. I came in on the second. Uh, you guys seem to just like be obsessed with getting it back on the table after that first game, and yeah. now I can see kind of see why. It's it's an 18xx like you know 1830 and 56 and so the other on. ones we've played, um, but it's definitely different. It's significantly stricter, but in like kind of like a weird. It's like it's still really open. It's just telling you the way to move forward, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so like there's certain rules like you can't buy this company until these companies are are floated, and you can't do um, certain things with your private companies that you could do another. Uh, and if you know enough about 18xx games, it's you know, it's a map. It's a map of uh, Isle of White. Island, the Isle of Wight off the coast of England. Um, and you're just you're building train routes and you're going around and uh, doing your best to make enough money. But there's also this crazy element in 1860 where eventually the government will just come in and run all the trains for you, which is yeah. really cool. And it's a, it's it's like a gimmick in a way, but it's also super important to your strategy. Mm-hmm. And it's what what I like about it is it's a gimmick that works, right? Like it makes sense. And it actually creates like an element of, of fear and anticipation mm-hmm. where your company is going to go away and it's just a matter of time and, and what can you do about it. Yeah, and, I, and ideally you want to be in the position where you can get more runs out of that company because its stock is still going to move and you're still going to get paid out, but it's just raw numbers. And I guess it's a little spreadsheety in the sense of like you can, it's almost like hitting the game on like fast forward at that point, like you pay money, get rid of like the least two performing, pay money, move stocks, get rid of the least two performing and so on. Yeah. But uh, I think for me, what I, I really like about 1864 is a variety of things. And uh, mostly the, the map feels a lot tighter. 
the uh, the trains. It is even though I think it's impossible for you to go bankrupt um, because of like getting a company dumped on you. It still feels like money is very tight in a different way. Um, you can't because, contribute. You can't pay your own money towards a company in this one. Yeah. So, and I and I think the more you know about those these games, and some games are designed around, um, you know, setting yourself up to kind of subsidize train purchases. I think. Um, uh, oh, geez, I was just looking it up. Um, there's one of them that's that has a very strict rule in train, uh, like president purchasing of companies, where you have to have at least the company itself has to be able to pay for fifty percent of the train itself um before you can actually contribute to it so because i think there's a lot of strategies around actually having shitloads of cash and then so what i'll just buy diesel i don't care um but in general you know, it's just odd like i always thought that like and it's probably just because we're amateur at these but i always yeah. thought that if you're paying your own money you've lost the game i i think it depends on how much you're paying yeah. Like if if you're paying a thousand uh, eleven hundred bucks out of pocket for a diesel, I think it's not looking good for you unless you're so far ahead that uh, something like you can come back from that. But um, uh, I think sixty was just a, it was such a, a breath of fresh air because the the game just it, it has all the same trappings of the rest of the genre, but it does enough different things to make you kind of like your eyes open especially after you've played 30 a few times and it starts to like, it's still a great game, but it's kind of long and um, it feels a little pre-programmed at the start, which is a little, it kind of bugs me a bit versus this one. Like who knows, maybe if you play it six times, you'd be like, yeah, it's pre-programmed still, but uh, it still felt a little more open in the sense of what people were doing, especially because it is like a two to four player game. And apparently three is the best for it. So um, depending on what people do and what their actions are, like you might get a very different game every time, especially with how the bids go. But, um, but is in a as a broader question about the genre, Joel, like what is it about this? Uh, like, do you enjoy these games, and what is it about them that appeals to you? If it, if you do, um, I think you mentioned it earlier today, but the games are just like a really interesting simulation that like the games aren't actually like like a lot of games out there it's like okay well here you are you're in like take agricola right it's like it's like you're, mm-hmm. you're on you're on a farm and you want to get a bunch of animals and they give you the points right like you get points for animals you get points for, for food mm-hmm. the same with like feast for odin or something right it's like okay yeah. you're gonna get certain amount of points if you don't cover these things up etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. and this these are your goals right like the game gives you goals uh in 18xx games it's like here's a lump of money try to make it grow right? yeah and however you want to do that it's your choice but uh you know if you buy stocks and the company pays out dividends you make those stock value goes up there you've made some money mm-hmm. you can sell those stock will go down whatever uh, depending on the obviously the game, and then obviously there's the fun of uh, here's an em- empty map with a whole bunch of unconnected cities. See how you can connect them. See how long a train you can run. See how much money those trains can make. Uh, every time you know you're all sitting there, you're all holding stocks in a company, and then somebody runs a train and it makes a bunch of money, and you're like, oh, three hundred seventy dollars, nice. I'm gonna get thirty-seven dollars a share. Yeah, and then there's that little bit of tension where they decide: Are they gonna give you that money, yeah. or are they, are they gonna 
keep it for the company to buy a better train and and screw you out of uh, your profits. Well, and especially so going back to 1860 here in 1830, I find it, it felt pretty rare for people to withhold uh, unless like it was obvious they're aiming for a train purchase the next round or they could see something happening here. At least that like, with our amateur level of it. With 1860, I felt like withholding was like just it was part of life. Um, and it, it led to something kind of interesting that um, because if you own shares in a company, obviously, if they're withholding, especially significant amounts, like that's costing you every round they're not paying out, even if it's like 40 bucks here or uh, 30 bucks there, it still adds up to some, some decent cash at the end. And you're thinking, hopefully, they're just going to get a train. The runs are going to be even better. But when they withhold for like three or four runs in a row, you start to like kind of look at the owner of the company and like, what are you doing? You're, but this it's benefiting you more than uh, at the end, I think, especially because yeah. of the the big jumps. But it still can be frustrating, especially if maybe at the beginning of the game when you're short on capital and you're trying to kind of start companies up or kind of play the stock market and you haven't gotten paid out. But it's usually the mid game that I noticed in the two games we played that people start withholding big time because the train rush starts to hit. Yeah, everyone's worried about not getting a nicer train. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure our you know most famous savant and critic of uh, gameplay, uh, Clearclaw, would have words with those um, <laughs> people. And ma and maybe sometimes you'd agree with them, you know, as far yeah. as like, okay, well, there's a time to hold your cash and there's time to pay out. Yeah. And obviously you want your stock to go up if you've got the most shares, but yeah. Um this the the difference of the stock value you have to calculate against the risk of being stuck without a train and having to spend money. Mm -hmm. Uh you have to along with that risk is going to be around where you're not making money and you're actually forced not only not only making any money for the company or sorry for the like by running trains, the stock mm -hmm. value is going to go down and you're paying money out of like pocket like it's it's a triple whammy yeah <laughs> when it comes to that situation uh yeah. which obviously is go it comes into that whole risk of holding more than one share if you're playing something like 1830 which is yeah. pretty funny and the priority deal just becoming critical where you're just looking around at how things are going like oh shit who's got priority <laughs> like, yeah. um all right cool well let's take a musical break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes uh stay tuned
All right, welcome back to CFRU 93.3 FM. You're listening to Android's Dungeon. What you just heard was uh, Shibaito Nest 1, not to be confused with 2 or 3, from uh, the Siren soundtrack. And I only picked that because uh, I was just scrolling through my music folder and came across it. Some tremendously dark and spooky ambient music by uh, a composer named, uh, what is it? Uh, Hitomi Shimitsu. I thought it was going to be someone else different, but uh, anyway, from the video game Siren, uh, PS2 classic that Joel, did you ever play it? Do you know? Have you ever heard of it? So it was made by it was one of these um, titles that came out, and it's like I don't know if it's considered a greatest hit, which I, I'd be astounded if somehow it was a considered a greatest hit. But uh, it's one of these games that's just so goddamn bizarre. You have no idea how it managed to get made and released in the mainstream. Uh, like western market that uh, follows this bizarre story of these people that end up on this island in japan somewhere and uh um they all have different timelines and their stories going around them with their uh, starts and ends uh but basically what's happened is there's just been this weird incident involving this uh red tide that has come in and anyone who drinks the water on this island becomes infected with this um sort of illness that turns them essentially into these mindless drones oh and uh, it's very spooky. It's got this bizarre art style where they, they have 3D images, but for the faces, they kind of basically project 2G image, 2D images of actors' faces onto them, which creates this very uncanny sort of like projector style. Um, mm. But the story is incredible, and uh, if the gameplay didn't suck so much, I think it would be a classic, but it's the clunkiest game I've ever played in my life. <laughs> it is almost impossible as far as I'm concerned to play, but... Uh, Another reason I picked that is because, uh, I guess we can segue into this for a little bit here, is uh, tomorrow, I believe, uh, all the new consoles are officially going to be in everyone's hands. Because uh, oh, I think yeah. a lot of the shipping notices came out. So the PS5, the Xbox, uh, what is it called? Like, do, we, do we remember the name of the new Xbox? Uh, no. <laughs> but just... I, I've seen pictures of it smoking. Yeah, the uh, although I think the main one was faked, where a guy just literally just blew his vapor. Series <laughs> X. Yeah, Xbox Series X. Series X, excuse me. Um, but uh, as part of the uh, opening lineup for at least a PS5 is the remake of Demon's Souls, which was a PS3 uh, uh, title from from software. Um, but Joel, what are your thoughts on the new release of consoles? Have you ever had a new console from the the get go? You don't mean uh, ex- the new Overcooked? The that's, new Overcooked. <laughs> that's going to be the, the flagship, right? Yeah, uh, that's it. I haven't had them out of the box. No. In fact, the only console I ever owned... Uh, well, that's not true. I had, a, I had my brother's Nintendo 64 for a year or two. But uh, no, I've never had a new console. I have a Switch, which is uh, like... That's pretty the good. Had and we had it. Uh, we got a right at the beginning of the, uh, the, lockdown. the lockdown, and it was totally worth it. Tons of fun. Zelda I mean, Breath of the Wild was one of the still one of the best adventure games I've ever played. And you bought that new though too, didn't you? Yep. Yeah, it was one of those things where it was like sold out everywhere for a while, and I looked every, looked for it for two or three weeks, and then it showed up at the North End Walmart, and I <laughs> drove down at like. 9 30 in the morning and, <laughs> and, and most are already gone right yeah there was like two left that's crazy uh 
I think uh, I know one person who's getting a PS5, and he's only getting the digital version because I think that the the physical edition makes you feel sad. Eh? Oh, it hurts me. You couldn't even get a disc if you wanted it. They couldn't even get a disc if you wanted. It. And I was chatting with somebody. Apparently, the digital copies are at times more than the physical copy, which of the sounds. Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which sounds insane to me. I want to verify that, but uh, they, they're a pretty reliable source, so I, I don't want to uh, say they're, they're incorrect. But I, I think the uh, being at the mercy of the digital copies kind of frightens me a lot. Even though, and I and I was kind of saying this in an email I wrote back to them, but um, I, I, you and I both have Steam. We've both purchased some games on Steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? There's a difference, or can you articulate why uh, owning a digital only console? would make you feel any worse than a, uh, like buying something on Steam? Well, there's one obvious thing, which is if I, like I bought a physical, I downloaded Animal Crossing, but I bought Zelda. Mm-hmm. And if I ever get tired of Zelda, I have a disc and I can just give it to somebody or sell it to somebody. Oh, okay, so but the reason I have a digital version of Animal Crossing that is tied to my Nintendo account, and same with our Steam games. Mm-hmm. You die. You can't actually pass down your games to people. I've I've talked about this on the show before, I think. But like when you die, the your thousands yeah. of dollars or hundreds of dollars in Steam games just get a- absorbed. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah, and that, that gets into why software preservation is so important. That mm-hmm. it's one thing to have physical copies of a game. It's also another thing to have, and you know, love them or hate them, the guys that are out there cracking games, mm-hmm. they're also creating this way for people to actually get them outside of these license agreements with Steam, per se, or these other sites that if... Because that's the thing about Steam that a lot of people forget is that it, it, it is a great service, and I use it all the time, and I, I am quite fond of it, but at the end of the day, you are you are licensing the games from them. You're paying for the this yep. incredible rental agreement, but at the end of the day, it's a rental agreement that steam can revoke i don't think at any time like it'd be one of these i think it'd be a huge disaster for them if they they screwed around with that sort of stuff but it's still something that if i turn around and i look behind me at my like a a ps2 game up there nobody can take that away from me except by force i guess so you can't take the sky from me yeah totally man and i am yeah i'm not i'm not a big fan of um sort of the model as it is steam makes it so convenient mm-hmm. but uh you know like let's say the apocalypse happens yeah <laughs> and we're all dead uh somebody could like the these pirates they could be putting putting games on external drives or something and somebody could come along and recover them someday because they're somewhere right whereas yeah. like these uh steam accounts they'll be they'll be gone yeah so you know they're they're uh, they're archivists. They're they're historians. They're, they're, saving, sense, yeah. they're saving the artwork of today. And you do get into other stuff too, like uh, GOG. I think uh, one of their things is a, a lot of the games they sell. I don't know if it's all of them, but uh, they there's no DRM, so it's considered to be if you buy it, you may have a license with them still, but the game you've downloaded doesn't have any copy protection. It's not checking in with the GOG central server to say yes, you are Joel. You can play this game. It's just there. You've just got the. You could delete GOG tomorrow and still have a functional copy. Whereas, let's say if I uh, download, like reinstall my copy of Resident Evil Two, the remake, and then I delete Steam, it's not going to play without that. So that right there is a kind of a fundamental problem with this whole sort of 
license agreement that is really convenient, but it's still a gilded cage, a really fantastic gilded cage, mm-hmm. but it's a cage at the end of the day. Um, sorry, were you going to say something? Nope. Okay. Well, it's, uh, I think with the dying moments of the show, um, I, the, the last thing I'll point out is that I, I have had a bit of time uh, in the evenings, like an hour or two here and there, to play a bit of Divinity 2. Um, okay. I picked it up on sale the other day. Have you played it? No, but somebody was telling me that, like, um, I think it was Tristan back at home was saying that um, Baldur's Gate is basically Divinity. Yeah, so it's the same studio doing it, Larian. Um, so it's, I think it's going to be using the same engine and everything. But when you play uh, Divinity, you kind of get the feeling that they're kind of dancing around, like they're trying to recreate the D&D experience. But they can't say it directly? They, they can't say it directly. So a lot of the stuff is kind of there, and it feels like a lot of things are very similar, even though the system, I guess, is totally different once you get down to it. And I don't want to get into it. But I think if there was ever a studio that would make you... like after with, I've only played it for a little bit, so I can't talk too much about it. But... Based on what I have played, I think if there was anyone I would have trusted, aside from like if we went back in time and got the old Black Black Isle team or the Obsidian team together to do it, they'd be the ones today I think that can competently handle doing uh, a new Baldur's Gate because so far it seems like game. yeah exactly because it, it seems like they really know what they're doing and they've spent a lot of time thinking about it and. The only thing that bugs me, and this way I don't understand, kind of upsets me, is that I have no clue why they're doing an early access release of this, aside from just kind of like a, it's a, like an IPO to get people to kind of get in on this, the ground floor of something that, like, I don't understand, aside from just being able to play test the first 20 hours or so, like, what's the... Well, you know, people are, get to play it before it comes out. But it's not even the full game, too, which... <laughs> kind of kills me like it, i don't know maybe the D enthusiasts out there can explain to me what the the big dealers are the early access types but for me and i think you're on the same page like when you see early access i usually just turn it off immediately unless yeah. someone swears that there's like tons of game here and it's worth it and they're just adding more and more versus like oh the game's not done yet but you're paying for like the first like chapter of a book i don't know what are your thoughts yeah. isn't like minecraft still in beta something like that maybe not <laughs> I have so no like idea. maybe um, like Terrarium or something. Like there's a lot of games out there that are in beta, even though they've been running for like 15 years. Like if you're in a situation like that, absolutely, I'm in. Yeah. But if you're like a AAA release and you're just like, oh, you want to check out early access? You know, you want to pay us the full amount of the game for uh, testing all our bugs for us? Like forget yeah. about it. We're yeah. Not doing it. And, I, and to be fair to Larian, I don't. I wouldn't call them a AAA, but I think that like it's. I'm just gonna pull up the price like real quick. Um, but it it isn't cheap. Let's just say that. What to? On the other hand, oh no, it I, is eighty bucks. So that is a full AAA price. <laughs> oh man. On the other hand, if I am offered uh, a beta for free, yeah, I'll, I'll bug test that. Yeah, <laughs> give me a second. <laughs> I'll test your uh, two player variant of uh, Megasynth. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> By the way, did he ask you um, to? He did, and I felt too embarrassed to write back and say, no, I haven't done it. <laughs> oh, no, did but, he ask you to proofread the rule book? Uh, no, did he send another one? Yeah. Okay, no, I didn't get that one, so that's probably why. <laughs> well, what, what does it look like? Uh, he didn't send me the rule book, but he sent out a thing saying, if anybody's interested in proofreading, send us a message. Oh, just doing some editing. Okay, that's not bad. 
Well, we'll see where it goes, but uh, I think I haven't done it, and we talked about it a little bit on the show. But I think you were not thrilled with the. the <laughs> no, nah, the the variant sucks, but yeah, they're at least they're trying. Yeah. Uh, I will say before we go that I did get a chance to uh, buy and start the Return to the Oberdin. Oh, all right. Well, we'll have to save it for next time. But what do you yeah. think of it so far? A lot of fun. Really fits into our like D and D theme, theme right bit, now. Eh? Yeah. And great yeah love it all right cool all right on that note we will call it uh, we're going to call lid at oh, uh, at uh this time here um keep listening to cfru 93.3 fm check us out on uh, all the podcasting websites and uh you know just don't go licking doorknobs out there at least no more than normal i'm jack <laughs> i'm joel thanks for listening have a good night